Thanks for checking out this video. My name's Kiara, and I hope you enjoy this message from Redemption Church. This morning, we're continuing on in our series entitled Summer Camp. And the goal of every good summer camp is to make friends and to meet Jesus. And uh, we've had a lot of good events over the summer, making friends. We'll show you a little bit of that later. Uh, but then every Sunday, we get to this point where we open up Scripture as relevant today as it's ever been, and we meet Jesus. And what we're doing is we're studying through the Gospel of Luke, and we're seeing where individuals meet Jesus. And up to this point, all of those individuals have met Jesus in the land of Galilee, uh, where the Jews had originally settled and uh, where Jesus was familiar with and kind of his hometown and around there. And so it was a comfortable territory for Jesus and his disciples. Well, today we're going to see through this particular story, um, Jesus venturing in into new land. Now, this particular story is filled with foreshadowing, um, foreshadowing of the ministry, not just that Jesus came to do right then, but the ministry that would happen after his death. And so we'll kind of point to that as we look through the story. And this morning, we're going to see where Jesus heals, who Jesus heals, how Jesus heals, and the cost of healing. Where Jesus heals, how Jesus heals, who Jesus heals, I reverse those ones, and the cost of healing. And so we'll point that out as we journey through the story. Let's first establish a setting. Uh, the setting is given to us right at the beginning. It says, then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Now, this particular area, which is also referred to in your Bibles as the Decapolis, meaning 10 cities, was um, settled by the Romans 100 years before this moment, violently uh, taken from the Greeks. Alexander the Great had settled it 300 years from this moment or 200 years before the Romans had. And so from an historical context, uh, they were now kind of a Greco-Roman um, territory and filled with everything that the, the Greco and the Roman Empire kind of uh, was known for. So it was uh, paganistic. It was um, polytheistic. And, and before that, though, even before those 300 years, if you go all the way back, I mean, we're really going back now to when the Israelites had originally settled into the promised land. And so if you um, go back to your early days of Bible um, school or Sunday school, and you remember when Moses and the people left Egypt and they ventured in, and then eventually under the leadership of Joshua, uh, the Jewish people took over the promised land and God told them to do what? Destroy everybody, right? Not because, well, because God wanted them to establish a kind of a, a, a a pure or a, a fresh start into this promised land, okay? Let's not get too distracted with this. And so um, the Israelites were supposed to go in and wipe everyone out and claim their territory, right? This is like, you know, six, 7,000 years um, ago. And when this happened, they didn't do it. And so what happened is seven of the nations um, left. They had not been completely destroyed and they crossed the sea and they settled here. And when they settled here in this land where this story is taking place, these seven nations, they became known as the expelled ones. And so they settled there. And these expelled ones, these seven nations worshiped a God named Baal. That's how we probably announce it or pronounce it. And so they worshiped this God, Baal, and they had an animal that was the symbol of their culture, their religion, and their economy. Culture, religion, and economy. An animal, that was the symbol of that. And it was the pig or the swine in this story. 
And so these seven nations, the expelled ones, they went over there, they crossed the sea and they established their own territory and the pig was used in their worship. It's what they sacrificed, it's um, what they ate, it's what they traded. And it was the center, the animal that kind of symbolized who they were. Now, of course, on the other side of the lake, the opposite in Galilee, you have the Jews who don't touch the pig. The pig is unclean. Don't go near the pig. And so now we have Jesus, as it says, opposite, going opposite of Galilee. Now, when it says opposite of Galilee, it certainly means physically opposite, right? It's on the opposite side of the lake, but there's much more to it than that. As I mentioned earlier, one side of the lake is polytheistic. The other side is one God, right? On one side of the lake, you have what the other side of the lake would call pagan culture versus religious culture. (laughs) One side of the lake, you have the pig. The other side of the lake, you have the sheep. Opposite in every way. And it is here where Jesus is going to go and continue on his ministry. Again, thus far up to this point, Jesus has just been in what would be a comfort zone for Jewish people. Now he's going to cross the lake and go to the opposite side. The gospel is going to break in to the land of the Gentiles. And just in case we confuse ourselves, or not to confuse ourselves, because oftentimes in, I think, American culture, we have this idea that the gospel, right, was originally for us. Well, most of us here aren't Jewish. And so this is how the gospel came to us came to us who were non-Jewish. This is the gospel breaking in to Gentile lands, into the land of the opposite. Now, what's been interesting, though, about Jesus's ministry is even as Jesus was in the comfort zone in the land, uh, his land, the Jewish land, even as he was there, his ministry was already opposite. It was the prostitute, not the Pharisee, the poor, not the rich, those who society considered dirty, not clean. Even in the land of comfort, Jesus' ministry was opposite, and now he's going to actually go to the land of opposite to continue his ministry. Now, in order to get there, of course, he has to cross the sea. When he does cross the sea, a familiar story takes place. It was the scripture right before this. It's when a hurricane-like storm comes out of um, seemingly nowhere, and the disciples think they're going to die. Many commentators believe that uh, this was Satan attempting to use nature to kill Jesus. It tried to kill him when he was a baby, right? And now he's going to use the storm and the sea to kill Jesus. Said another way, or looking at it from another way. When Jesus decided to expand his ministry, when Jesus decided to break into new territory, Satan tried to destroy him. And so he's on his way over The sea is going crazy. The storm is brewing. The disciples are freaking out. Jesus, we know, is asleep. They go down there. He comes up and he just says, peace, be still, right? Calms the sea and he gets to the land of the opposite. Here the gospel is gonna break in to new ground. And as soon as he lands, it says, then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, So to answer the first question, where does Jesus do ministry? Opposite of where we think he would. When Jesus had stepped out onto land, so the moment Jesus steps onto land, the moment he gets there, the moment the Son of God now has traveled across the historical context of this land. I mean, we're going all the way back to the time of Moses. 
right? The, uh, in part, the pagan culture that exists there exists because the children of Israel were disobedient way back then. And now Jesus steps in. And the moment he steps up on land, he is going to meet the um, strongest or um, most fierce spiritual opposition outside of Satan that he meets in his entire ministry. It says, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Now, the next part of the story is going to give us background on this individual. And there's a few questions that would come up as you're beginning to study this text. One would be like, how did he end up like this? How did this guy who was at one point in time seemingly normal, who was a part of the city, who had parents, maybe he had a spouse, maybe he had kids, he probably had friends. How did he end up like this? And part of the, uh, the, the, the nature of this story is understanding the progression of how sin works, of how evil works. Now, there's a temptation in modern culture when we read stories like this. Even modern commentaries get into this, and that is to misinterpret Scripture, to read this and to say, ah, see, back then they didn't have good understanding of mental health and, and things like that. And so this guy wasn't demon-possessed. It was just a mental health issue. It was an illness, and they didn't know what to call it, so they labeled it demonic. No, Luke chapter 9 and other places in Scripture, Jesus makes a very clear distinction between illness and demonic influence. This man is not ill. He is under demonic possession. He's demon-possessed. It's a quick reminder for us that demons exist, that there is a spiritual world that we don't see, that there are spiritual things happening in that world, and that Satan and his demons love to destroy people. They love to attack Christians. They love to attack non-Christians. Like demons are real. We see this in the story. And then of course, we see this, that Jesus has power over demons. That we as Christians don't have to, for a minute, submit to demonic influence in our lives. That we have authority over it in Christ. What we also see in this story is that there are times, and I get that this is hard to discern and we love to bring our modern thinking into it, where we attack things, calling them physical or mental that are actually spiritual. Now, we can't do the opposite either and call everything spiritual when certain things are physical. But there are times when what is really uh, the heart of the issue isn't physical, isn't mental, it's spiritual. And it needs to be attacked spiritually. So we have this man, this man who was at one time a part of the city, a part of culture, a part of the neighborhood. And now he's not. Now we look at this man and, and, and we see this man. And who is he? And he is the person who has been most damaged by the darkness and the depravity of evil. One question in this story is, what help is there for those who are most far gone? What hope is Jesus for those who have experienced the darkest that evil has to throw? What hope is in Christ? This man, he's naked. He's very violent. 
One part of the story says that they tried to tame him. And the word used there for tame is like the word used for animal tamers. This man had become so animalistic, it's like he'd lost his human identity. He's naked. He's isolated. And he's living among the tombs. Said another way, he, he, it's like he's the walking dead or he's a shell of what he once was. Evil has distorted him so much, he's barely recognizable. If you want a picture of hell, look at this man. This man is the result of unchecked evil growing and growing and growing. And when evil goes unchecked, grows and it grows and it grows, what does it result in? He's exposed, he's isolated, and he's a shell of what he was once. This is the result of evil. This is the result of sin that even um, creeps up in our own heart. You know what's interesting? Firsts are always important in scripture, always important. So we have the first man in the garden of Eve, or in the garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve. And there they're naked and everything's good because sin hasn't broken into the world. And at that time, sin or nakedness in the garden meant innocence. But once sin enters into the world, uh, the nakedness meant exposure, guilt, shame. So you have the first man, Adam, in the garden, but then he sins, so God clothes him, he covers him, showing him that he's forgiven him, that he's now covered and protected. And then you have this man who's just the complete opposite. When sin um, next breaks into the world through Cain and Abel, the words that are used to describe Cain's murder of his brother make Cain almost feel like an animal, like he's become animalistic in his nature. Now you have the first man who, when the gospel breaks into the Gentiles, you have these pictures and these, this mirror almost of what happened in the garden. It's as if God is saying, look what happens in a culture that has been untouched by the gospel for centuries. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus takes his first step into that land, Satan is going to throw the worst he can throw at this man, or at Jesus, from day one. From a human perspective, the fact that Jesus would even have a conversation with this guy is incredibly brave. I mean, no one else is willing to do this. No one else is willing to travel alone to this guy. He's completely isolated. I mean, the only interaction it seems like they have with him is when they're trying to tie him down with chains. And then after they, he would do that, his demonic strength would break the chains and it says a demon would lead him out into the desert. So Jesus faces this guy, this exposed, isolated shell of a man. And at one point he asks him, what's your name? You know what he says? He says, legion, for we are many. The, the demon actually begins to take over his identity. There's a transition in the story from when the man is talking for himself to when the demons begin to talk for him. His identity is so far gone, it is now only wrapped up in the evil that exists inside of him. He's lost his identity as a human. He's defined now by this sin and evil. It's interesting because when he meets Jesus and they then begin to have a conversation, 
He immediately recognizes Jesus. Now, whether that's the man part of him recognizing or the demon, it's somewhat unclear, but one of them knows Jesus and knows who he is and calls Jesus out by name. I took a lot of Spanish in high school and this very passionate Spanish teacher. And when he would try to teach us the difference between the verbs saber and conocer in Spanish, they both mean to know. He would always say this, even the demons saber Jesus, but they don't conocer Jesus. And he would say this all the time, Isaiah speaks Spanish. That's why he's laughing. And this is what he would say over and over. He gets so passionate about it. Yo, say Jesus, pero no conozco Jesus. Está bien? Si. Now, someone's like, gee, Stephen spoke in tongues on church? Right. Now, the demons knew of Jesus. This man knew of Jesus, but didn't know relationally, intimately, Christ. So these demons call Jesus out by name. They actually bow down and begin to worship him, right? I mean, that's a posture of worship when you get onto your knees and that's what they do. And then either the man or the demon, it's very confusing at this point on which one is speaking for which, but at this point, their identities are really merged into one. It says, do not torment me. Do not torment me. What's going on here? In this man, we have to see two powerful things. The first is, it said, for some time, for some time, leading up to this point, for some time, he had been naked, isolated, and alone. In other words, he wasn't always like that. Evil had progressed in him. Sin had progressed in him. The, the, the legion of demons, you wonder, did it start with one? Now, as we see this, we have to see a snapshot, uh, see that as a picture of what happens in our own souls. That sin starts small. Usually, it starts controllable. And sin grows and grows and grows. And as I said earlier, if you want to see what happens to sin unchecked, and maybe you don't believe it. Maybe you say, well, that, I mean, this guy seems crazy. What we only see is sin unchecked for a lifetime. What about sin unchecked for eternity? What about sin that just continues to grow and grow and isolate us more and more and begin to absorb more and more of our identity? You've probably seen this in people. People that you see and you look into and they look a shell of what they used to look like. They've completely isolated themselves. I just say, pastor trick, one of the times you know people are in sin is when they start disappearing. Not always, but very often. Sin begins to emerge in their heart and their natural tendency is to isolate and to hide. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, every day we ought to be exhorting, uh, challenging each other where sin is present. So the writer of Galatians says, gently restore your brother or sister caught up in sin because unchecked, unchecked for long enough, you look like this guy. This is the trajectory of sin. This is what I'll do. There's something else that's happened though. He looks at Jesus and he says, don't torment me. What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I have fallen in love 
with this identity. I have fallen in love with the demons. And for you to expel them would be torment to me. Now, that seems weird. Let me say it this way. We embrace Christ, right? Or we're trying to live a Christian life. We're trying to turn our hearts over to Christ, trying to live a Christian life. And oftentimes what happens is there's something in our hearts that is unchecked, that gets deep in there. And we get to this point where we say, oh, for me to lose that would be torture. For me to lose that would be torment. Said another way, something in our heart, whether it's from the point of salvation or it's that which stops us from salvation, grows inside of us in such a way that the thought of losing it, the thought of losing it is, um, is more powerful than the motivation to go follow Christ. More practically, God, this unbiblical relationship is more powerful and important to me. And to lose it would be torment. I can't do it. God, this, this grasp of greed is so deep in me to lose it would be torment. This bitterness, this anger, releasing what they did to me, what he did, what she did, it would be torment to let it go. So we look at Jesus and we say, don't torment me. Don't ask that of me. I've fallen in love with it. Let me tell you where that leads. To this guy. Unchecked, it grows and it grows and it grows. And what was just a small part of your soul becomes your identity. You look and you say, how do people get that evil? How do people get that greedy? How do people get that vengeful? How do people get that bitter? Unchecked, it grew and it grew and it grew. So who does Jesus heal? Who does Jesus heal? Those who the demon, in this point, the, the actual or the metaphorical demon is so deep, it has consumed you. Here's the good news. Jesus can heal us even from that. That's the good news. Now, how does Jesus heal? Well, in this particular moment, I mean, he heals in an instant. The individual almost doesn't even look to be pursuing the healing. I mean, he did run to Jesus, right? So there was an element of Jesus that was attractive to him. He came to Jesus. Then he says, he begs him actually not to torment him. And then there's not really any more dialogue. And all of a sudden the demons are just leaving. It's as if Jesus looked down at the man and said, you don't even know what to ask for. I'm just going to go ahead and give it to you. I'm just going to heal you because you're so overcome by your sin and your uh, and evil in you that I'm just going to explode grace in you and send these demons out. And that's what happens to the guy. And then an interesting thing happens. When the demons come out, 
or are about to be expelled, they start begging Jesus. They said, hey, don't send us into the abyss. Why don't you send us into what? The pigs. Send us into the pigs. And Jesus thinks about it for a second. He says, fine, go into the pigs. And so the demons all run into the pigs and they um, run over the cliff. It says it's violent as it's happening. Why? Because sometimes the act of removing what's in us is a violent act. Paul says, crucify sin. It's a violent act. Sometimes we lie to ourselves and we say, this is so uncomfortable. It brings me such great discomfort to think about losing this thing. It must not be from God. No, that probably means it is from God. Your flesh is just strong. And to rid yourself of it will be violent. And so Jesus sends it into the pigs. It's violent, right? Because transformation sometimes is violent, right? And it runs over and it, they fall, the pigs fall into the, uh, the lake or the pond and they, they drown and they die. And everyone freaks out. It says, then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Jesus is killing pigs. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. The man who was so far gone is now the complete opposite. So Jesus went to the land of the opposite to change people into the opposite of what they were. And so he was exposed and now he's covered. He was isolated and now he's in community. He was a shell of who he was and now he was fully who he was supposed to be. This is the power of the gospel. And so the man is sitting there. And then the response to this is interesting and it shows us my, my fourth point, the cost of healing. It says, and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. By the way, the word there for healing is the same word we use for saved. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the garrisons asked him, Jesus, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man, I'll read the end. The man from whom the demons had gone begged, remember he had begged once before, we'll get back to this, begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. We see the cost of healing here. We see the cost in three different levels, a cost to Christ, a cost to the community, and a cost to the convert. This is the cost of healing. The first cost was Jesus had to go from the land of comfort to the land of the garrisons, the unknown land. And in order to do it, he had to face a storm, a storm that attempted to take his life. And in this particular story, the storm doesn't take his life. Jesus lands in the land of the opposite and he brings his healing. In the greater story, Jesus had to move from heaven down to earth. And then when he came down to earth, he had to cross. He had to cross a greater storm. Satan threw the storm on the sea at him. Satan would throw his best attempt at the cross at him. And the cost to Christ to move from one side to the next, to, to go rescue us 
his non-Jewish followers to come rescue us. The cost for that was his life on the cross as the payment for our sin. So the cost of healing, the cost of salvation, it cost Christ his life. But in this story, it's not the only cost that happens. See, the second cost is a cost to the community, or we would say the cost to the church today. They weren't willing to pay the cost for healing. Once they saw what the cost was for the healing of that man, they told Jesus to leave. They, in essence, said, we don't want any more of this. If this is what it costs, we don't want it. See, what had happened is their pigs had died. The pigs, the symbol of their religion, the symbol of their culture, the symbol of their economy or their economic means, it had cost them that. And they said, if this is what healing costs, we don't want anything to do with this. Let me say it more plainly. If healing means I have to look into my culture and not just embrace it where it is wrong, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm not willing to bear that cost. If, if healing means it's going to economically cost me something, I'm not willing to bear that cost. If healing means, Jesus, that when you come in, you combat my practices and my deep-held traditions, I'm not willing to pay that cost. See, Jesus does break into the land of the opposite, but he doesn't break into it peacefully. Jesus doesn't break into the land of the Gentiles and say, okay, you guys have your pale worship and all of that kind of stuff, and uh, that's okay, but let me tell you something else about a sheep. No, Jesus shows up and he says, this right here, and what I do, are at war against each other. In other words, your love, my love, our love for what this world has and says is normal and is okay will combat with what Christ says is normal and is okay. And there will be a violent collision. And the cost to the community, to the church, is to say, all right, Christ, Whatever it may cost, keep doing it for the sake of healing, for the sake of salvation. Now, there's a third cost. It's a cost to the convert. The convert, the man, runs up to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. And you know what Jesus says? No. He says, you stay here. What's the convert learning? Always learning the first lesson of salvation. Your life is no longer your own. Your life is no longer your own. So immediately he gets healed and he says, I know what I should do. And Jesus says, great guess, but no. No, you stay put. Which then makes us have to ask, are we willing to pay the cost of conversion? Because is salvation free? Absolutely. You know what else it cost? Your life. Everything. So the man learns from that moment, my life isn't my own anymore. It's not about what I want. It's about what he wants. Even when I think of what I want is what he wants, if it's not what he wants, then it's not what I want. It's what he really wants. And so he stays. And Jesus gives him an order. He says, just stay and declare how much I've done for you. Jesus comes back across the sea later, because they tell him to leave, and Jesus obliges and he leaves. But he comes back a few chapters later. And when he comes back a few chapters later, you know what happens? 
he lands. And instead of demonic force, the most powerful thing that Satan can throw at him, meeting him there, you know what meets him? A crowd of people looking for salvation. They have to ask, how'd they know? How'd they know? The man went and did his job. One dude changed by Christ shifted the culture of the entire area. Which teaches us that when we're willing to pay the cost and give him our lives, he will do something with it. And he will do something through it. Thanks for watching this video. If you want to learn more about our church, go ahead and click the link in the description or head on over to experienceredemption.com. Have a great week, guys.